Okay. Thank you, Freddie, for that wonderful prayer. So, since this movie is all the rage right now, and in the spirit of our esteemed Reverend Doctor Nathaniel Grace Vitanto, who, for you OGs would remember, regularly would spoil movies for us for the sake of a sermon illustration, let me tell you about this new movie, Oppenheimer. Right? Now relax. I'm not going to spoil it for you, because you probably know this anyway, because it's based on some historical event, but I think it's a, an appropriate sermon illustration here. Because the movie Oppenheimer is basically telling us uh, about this period in the early 20th century amongst academic physicians, not physicians, physicists, right? Those are different things. After this guy, Albert Einstein, developed his theory of general relativity, right? This an entirely new way of thinking about physics emerged called quantum mechanics, and I'm nowhere near qualified enough to tell you about what exactly that is, but the movie is about how this just blew everyone's mind because it has untold potential. It was such a revolutionary idea that the brightest minds in that field were willing to dedicate their whole lives and careers into studying it and harnessing its power, culminating in this collective effort that produced the most powerful weapon in the history of the world, right? The atomic bomb. A weapon of such terrifying destructive capacity that it granted us humans for the first time ever the ability that would seem like fantasy before then, right? The power to destroy the entire world. Now this is somewhat analogous to what happened in the first century in the Mediterranean world where this guy, Jesus of Nazareth, with his life and teachings, the gospel, through him emerged this entirely new way of thinking about our relationship with God. An idea just as revolutionary that so captured the imagination of scholars back then, like the Apostle Paul, because the gospel, too, has this untold potential to do something that seemed impossible up to that point, and as far as we believe, is still impossible now apart from it. And it is this unique ability to reunify a deeply fractured humanity that can't seem to stop dividing and hurting each other and to bring them together as family. The gospel is this such powerful unifying force that the world has never seen before and has never seen since. So today, we're going to continue on our series in the book of Ephesians. And what we find in the text is we're about to study Paul's instructions about the way that we might harness this incredible reunifying power of the gospel. And we'll see that as far as Paul's concerned, this is a priority for the church to understand and dedicate their efforts to work on. He talks about this subject way more than predestination, way more than spiritual gifts, and even way more than about what happens after we die. Because Christianity, friends, is a lot more than about how we can personally avoid going to hell. I would argue that it is, in fact, much more about how the heaven we're looking for and longing for is actually meaningfully available to us right now. Therefore, Christians would be missing out greatly if we never look beyond 
what the gospel does for us personally and to really take to heart what the gospel does for us collectively. And that would be a great shame. So with that in mind, let's read what Paul has to say in Ephesians 4, verse 1 to 16. This is the word of God. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he hath also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended above, far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined together and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. How about that one, right? That was a mouthful, wasn't it? You can feel Paul's passion there. There is so much you could have explored in that text, and we could have at least stretched this out to like three sermons, but... I want to discuss the whole thing today because I really think it's important for us to see the flow of Paul's thought because right now we're halfway through the book of Ephesians. We just finished chapters 1 to 3 where Paul had discussed what God had done for us, how He loved us and made us alive to Christ and reconciled us to Himself and to each other, right? You guys remember this? Now, in the rest of the letter, Paul is going to get quite practical by touching on what living in this truth would look like in specific situations in our lives. And in the text that we just read, Paul was beginning to do this by laying out some general principles, right? The big idea of what he's trying to accomplish by giving us these instructions. And it revolves around what verse 1 calls walking in a manner worthy of your call. In other words, Paul is interested in realizing the great potential of what we can be because of what God has done for us. And this text brings into view three main features that Paul wants the community of God's people to mature into as we follow Christ, right? Our three points. The gospel makes it possible 
for us to become a community that is, one, perfected unto unity, two, enriched by diversity, three, growing towards maturity. Perfected unto unity, enriched by diversity, growing towards unity. As always, I encourage you guys to all follow along in your printouts because we're going to be following Paul's train of thought verse by verse. Okay? So, point one. The gospel makes a community that is perfected unto unity. So Paul begins his thought here by breaking the rule that most preaching classes in seminary teaches us. By actually giving the application first and not last. And he actually starts by describing five things in verse 2 and 3 that he wants the church to be self-consciously and intentionally working on so that we can walk in a matter worthy of our calling. And what sticks out to me, if you read this list, is how all of these terms are relational. Because what is humility if not thinking less about yourself? Right? It's not thinking about yourself less because you don't feel like you're better than anyone, but you think about yourself less. You feel me? And what's patience and gentleness, if not this generosity with time and our emotional capacity, because we believe someone else's well-being is more important than our own schedule and agenda. And bearing one another, in the Greek, is literally like carrying one another, right? Like digendong, being carried unto safety. All because you are passionate in preserving this bond of peace that the Holy Spirit has bound us to. Now, of course, this is not an exhaustive list of all the things that we must do to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. But I think Paul expects us to get the point by now. Because if you were to summarize all of these instructions, all of these things into one word, what would it be? Love, isn't it? This self-sacrificial, other-centered way of love that the Lord Jesus himself embodied is what will show people that we have truly been freed from sin. Our love is what will testify most loudly to the world that the gospel really works. You see, Paul could have pressed them to learn more doctrine, right? To spend more time praying or to busy ourselves with more religious activities in order to be worthy of our calling. But he didn't. Because Paul understood how the Lord Jesus himself said in John 13, by this all people will know that you are my disciple if you have love for one another. And please don't misunderstand, friends. Paul is not saying that all these things will make you worthy of calling. Rather, he's pointing out that God has already called you, so let's go act like it. So to do this, right, we, we need other people. We need to be in deep and meaningful relationships with other people, i.e., in the community, to exercise love in. And it looks like Paul is saying that it is especially imperative for the church, not just this particular church, ACC, but everyone who identifies themselves as Christians to do this with one another. Look, I, I know that we have many meaningful relationships outside of church. I certainly have some. 
our colleagues at work, our closest friends, and our immediate families, to name a few. And although I guess a lot of us would be praying that they'd be part of the church too, the reality is that might not be the case right now. So I'm not saying that it's any less meaningful, meaningful for us to be lovingly humble and patient to them. But I think in this text, Paul is really saying that it's especially urgent for us to do this with other Christians. Not because Christians are in any way better or more valuable than anyone else, but because in Paul's view, there is something utterly unique about the church that makes it make sense for us to behave in this way. And that's what Paul goes on to explain in verses 4 to 6 where he breaks down for us what it means to be united in the bond of peace by the Holy Spirit. He goes on to list but a bunch of things we have in common. Right? We are one body, which is Paul's metaphor that he's going to run with to describe the identity of the church in the next couple of ch- chapters. Right? That Jesus is manifested in and through the church. We also have one spirit whose presence is animating the body. One hope, one future inheritance and heavenly kingdom that we're all partakers of. One Lord, Jesus Christ. One faith, one confession of loyalty to this Lord. One baptism, one sacred symbol and sign and seal that is applied, that marks that we are incorporated and included in the people of God. And finally, one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. We are one family. Now, this is actually a pretty clever list because Paul basically just summarized everything he talked about in chapters 1 and 3 and builds up the list to show how every person of the Trinity is involved in this unity. The Spirit, the Lord Jesus Christ, and God the Father are all mentioned to emphasize that this unity is no ordinary oneness. Rather, it is this unity that mirrors and is being maintained by the love of the triune God. And if my math was correct, I counted seven ways that Paul says we are one. And seven, an important number in the Bible. Right? I think so. So that's got to be a coincidence, right? Probably not, right? Number seven signifies completeness and perfection. Communicating that despite whatever differences that we might have, because we have these seven things in common, we are already perfectly united. Therefore, friends, the church is supposed to be a radically different community than any that we would find in the world. Because we are not simply an aggregation of people who are interested in the same things. But we are a congregation, a collection of people was greater together than the sum of its individual parts. Because connected together to our head, Jesus Christ, the world gets to see and experience Christ. Hence, we should find our identity in exactly the fact that we are part of this assembly. Meaning that why I, you and I, consider our lives to be meaningful is before anything else because I am part of God's elect, because I am part of God's family, which means now that how I live my life, 
what I'm about is facilitating other people to experience the love of the triune God that has been given to me freely first. And if this is the case, in this community, it would be appropriate for us to be humble. I don't need to lift myself up to seek honor. All the honor that I need has already been given to me or will be graciously be given by God. And because I've received grace already, gentleness and patience towards others will feel safe. I can now afford setting aside my own interests to look out for someone else's well-being. Even eventually getting to the point where we're willing to do whatever it takes, even carrying each other, so that we can make it together. So we can be like Jesus, who already did give everything for us and carried our sins on the cross so that we can be saved. Sounds great, doesn't it? Maybe a little too good to be true. Because I know that for many of us, church isn't always experienced like this. Instead of being welcomed into the unity of the faith, I've experienced being personally deeply hurt and rejected by other Christians. Well, at the same time, I have been that person as well who made someone go, I'll never go to church if it's filled with people like him. That is really, really sad. But how I began to get over it is through God helping me accept that this is somewhat inevitable. Because though we've been unified by the Spirit, we're at the same time still works in progress. We are children, to use the metaphor that Paul's going to run with later in verse 14. So we need to mature into this unity by making efforts to attain it. And this will necessarily involve growing pains, there will be ups and downs. But after we accept this and we realize this and stop expecting that the church will be this painless place filled with perfect people, it was then that we'll be freed to love the church and actually start experiencing the church as truly special place that you and I have been given a unique gift to bless with. Just point two. The gospel makes a community that is enriched by diversity. So Paul, right, had just at length explained how deeply unified we are. Notice in verse 7, Paul turns to acknowledge our individual uniqueness. He says that grace was given to each of us. Not just some of us, but every single one of us is gifted to serve one another in a distinct and special way. And this is actually an effect of the Messiah's triumph on the cross, which Tezar discussed in his liturgy before. Because that's what he's trying to do here, as Paul quotes Psalm 68, verse 18, that we read in our call to worship. Explaining in verse 8 and 10, right, this is definitely the least, straightforward part of the passage here, so give me like two minutes to explain it so that I can hopefully illuminate Paul's point more clearly, where back then in ancient times when your city or land was under the threat of some enemy, your king would actually ride out with his army and go to war. 
And if he was victorious and he successfully delivered his people from the hands of the enemy, the king would return to the city and ascend back to his throne and he would have this parade and he would give this bounty, the spoils of war that he wanted from the enemy to his people. He would dis- the king would distribute these gifts for their people's well-being. And if you read Psalm 68 as a whole, it's actually kind of this battle hymn right, where the Lord is put in this position of this glorious king who returned from battle and is on this victory procession as he ascends back to his throne, bringing with him people who he had just liberated from the enemy. And if we read all the way to the end of the psalm, what do we read is distributed in the spoils of war to his people by God, right? Right? Psalm 68, verse 35, it says there, strength and power. And what did Paul say to his people he would give in chapter 3, verse 16? Strength and power. So here's the point, right? Paul here was reading the psalm Christocentrically as we should too. He was reading it in light of Christ. He saw that it was Jesus, actually, who is this ultimate king who defeated not just an earthly enemy, but our ultimate adversary, the prince of the power of the air, the powers of sin and death, in order that we, who were once captive and dead in sin, may be free and alive. So that he can bring us back into his kingdom in this victory procession and distribute to us gifts. But in order to do that, verse 9 tells us, he had to descend. Our king had to first leave his heavenly throne to come to where we lowly sinful humans are to endure and suffer for us, descending even lower to the grave and tasting even death, defeating it so that we don't have to be oppressed by it anymore. Hence, verse 10 tells us that this king who is descended has now ascended Back to where he was, the victor who was crucified, who died, is now seated in the glory that he had before time began, that he always had with the Father, in a position of power where he has the right to distribute the gifts to us. Right? That's the gospel story, friends. So I think Paul brings this out so that we can really appreciate that the gifts that God has given us is more valuable than we can imagine. Jesus had to go through the cross. He had to go through hell and back so that he can give it to us. So we must never take it for granted. But don't misunderstand. Right? The gift that Paul is talking about here in this particular passage is not forgiveness of sins, which is also described as a gift and an amazing one. But Paul here particularly is talking about people. The gift that God gives His people are other people who are empowered by the Holy Spirit to sustain and guide the people of God. And the Spirit does that. How the Spirit does that is by giving each individual members a unique way for each of us to do this. And as such, Paul lists out some examples of these different gifts in verse 11. Now, 
This is not the only list of gifts in the Bible. As far as I know, there are five such lists. And in all of these lists, the New Testament authors never gives us a comprehensive list of all the gifts. But rather, they always seem to highlight gifts that are particularly relevant for the church. So here in Ephesians, Paul actually hones in on the gifts that, are, that has to do with leading and equipping his people which makes sense because uh, in this passage, he's particularly talking about maturing the church. So I don't think it's fruitful for us to define each of the gifts here that Paul mentions in his particular sermon. That'll be too much of a detour. Because the point that Paul is trying to make is that the leaders of this church who possess these gifts of teaching don't have it so that they can receive honor and glory. The leaders of the church, the apostles, prophets, even the apostle Paul himself cannot be prideful because their position of leadership and whatever authority they have was not earned but was given in God's mercy. And it is actually given to them to steward for the greater purpose that's mentioned there in verse 12. So that all the saints may be equipped for the work of ministry and the whole body might be built up. Friends, the goal of Christian leadership is not to build ourselves up so that we get to do the work, so that we get the credit. It's always been that for the purpose of building each other up so that we all together can do the work and that God gives to credit, therefore, it is completely inappropriate and counterintuitive to the logic of the Bible of any Christian leader lords their authority and gifts over another. Because, friends, if we actually use this gift for what God has intended, if we fulfill our purpose in stewarding and using what God has given us for the church, and we're in deep relationships in our communities and leveraging our talents for the church, what will happen, and when, when all this is happening in sync, verse 13 tells us something magical will happen. We will experience this unity of doctrine and we'll experience Jesus in such a vivid way that it embodies this complete man, right? That's what mature man here. Uh, is literally in the original Greek, right? Aner teleos, complete and perfected man. And when that happens, we will resemble the fullness of Christ. Or to put it more simply, when we are blessing the church with the gifts that God has uniquely given each of us, the people inside the church get to experience Jesus and the people who are outside the church get to see Jesus. Does that interest you at all, church? So there's a couple of takeaways here that I think I have to make explicit before I move on to the next point. Is that firstly, that no one person can reflect the fullness of Christ. But a unified group of his followers might. So this unity would not be expressed, but in fact impeded when we're trying to assimilate people into this hegemonic kind of culture. We're trying to make people just be the same. Because unity does not mean uniformity. In fact, 
the community of God's people actually should rejoice in diversity. Because it is indeed something that will be celebrated in the assembly of the saints in heaven, if you read Revelation chapter 7. It is counterproductive, therefore, if the goal of our community is to force people into some kind of Christian mold. Because we'll mirror heaven much better if we actually strive to be as inclusive as possible in how we do our ministry without, of course, compromising on what we know God has commanded us to do. But secondly, and I think for a church of our size, this needs particular emphasis that no Christian should be unemployed, okay? Meaning that if you've really been incorporated into the people of God by the Messiah, that means that you too have been blessed with a gift that has been given not for your good and your pride, but to bless God's people. So there is a place, a ministry that you can be fruitful in, that you can be a blessing in. The Word of God pretty much guarantees it. And if you know me, I, I, I never want to sound excessively harsh or be in any way guilt-tripping any of you to do anything. But I think it's fair to conclude from this text that if you're a Christian, and you're not interested in using your gifts for God's kingdom, if you're content with just being a consumer in church, you're resisting the Holy Spirit in your life. And you're depriving the church of a gift, your unique present and talent that was meant to be a blessing for everyone. The church can't be church without you. Get it? Ha <laughs> ha. Right? Here. Right? And let me clarify again. This doesn't have to be here at CCC. And I know you might be in a season of life where you feel like you need to be served, then you can serve. And if that's the case, I'm really sorry about that. And I hope that you would let us serve you and build you up. Because we want you to get better. And we are willing, we are called actually to do whatever is necessary to see you serve Jesus. Because it's not enough, friends, for any Christian just to be an audience and consumer at church and just consume content. Consume Christian content and just listen to some sermons or listen to some songs. It's not enough for us just to be hanging out with other Christians. Because God saved you not only to bless you, but for you to be a blessing to others. And neglecting to do this is actually pretty dangerous. Because indeed, it also holds in Christianity that we are never staying the same. We're either getting better or getting worse. Which is the last point, just briefly. The gospel makes a community that is growing towards maturity. In verses 14 to 16, we see Paul ends this impassioned appeal for the church to come together and use our gifts for one another with this interesting mix of metaphors, right? That he uses to communicate how there are only two alternative situations that the Christian can be in as we exist in this sinful world. First possibility is in verse 14, that we would be like children, right? And Paul 
likens being a child to being on a, like a boat on a stormy sea, helplessly being influenced and threatened by the waves that surround us, easily being swayed, labil, right, in Bahasa. And Paul clearly identifies here what the children here are threatened by, these false doctrines, these human cunning, these deceitful sin schemes of man, saying that unless we have been planted in a community that has Christ as the head, and we, and we still defiantly try to go our own way, we're not actually making our own path. But we're opening ourselves up to the influence and beliefs that may well lead us away from Christ and contradict what God has revealed to us in the Scriptures. Because being in community and actively serving one another with our gifts is how God intends to protect us from these corrupting influences of the world, of which there is no shortage of. So as we study God's Word together, as we pray together, as we speak truth to one another, we are actually grounding each other in God's truth, showing each other the truth of God's love and marveling together at God's glory. Doing this, friends, is how God intends to make the things of the earth grow strangely dim in light of His glorious grace. Because when we are all united and rooted in Christ and each member is actually working properly and serving one another, look what verse 15 describes the state of this church will be says we're going to be growing into our head who is Christ, right? That's an interesting statement, isn't it? Growing into our heads. Because what kind of humans have heads that are disproportionately large for their bodies? Babies, right? And that's part of what makes them so cute. But at the same time, because their head is so big, it makes balancing more challenging. That's why they're so susceptible to falling and being clumsy. So as kids mature, they actually grow into their heads, being able to carry it more comfortably and naturally. So that's the metaphor here. Because that's apparently what maturing in Christ is like. Christ's headship over us will more and more feel more natural. When we were spiritually immature, Right? Living a life of integrity, of holiness and righteousness might feel awkward. It might feel really challenging and heavy, and you might stumble a lot. But as we mature, sin is what will actually feel uncomfortable and weird. And it's going to feel more and more right to us when we are obeying God. But the only way, friends, that's going to happen, our maturity is going to happen, is if we commit to obedience even when it feels awkward and counterintuitive right now. What verse 15 translates as speaking the truth in love. In the Greek there, the word speaking is not actually there. But the word there is the noun truth that's made into a verb. So it's literally like truthing in love. Meaning the scope of this command, of this verse, is not only restricted to just words, but all action. Knowing, speaking, doing truth, committing to the way of truth with the posture of love. 
obeying God, the God of truth, and serving one another with humility, patience, gentleness, and towards unity, as Paul mentioned beforehand. That's what's going to make us grow. And don't misunderstand, though, friends, right? Though our growth will come through our efforts to love one another, Paul reminds us in verse 16 that it is not the ultimate reason why our efforts will make us grow. It's not the reason why our efforts will be effective. Rather, it tells us that it is because Christ, our head that we are attached to, is the one who makes us grow so that we build ourselves up in love. Interesting phrasing, isn't it? We build ourselves up, but at the same time, Christ is what makes us grow. These are not contradictory statements. Because the body can only grow when we're attached to the head, but it is the head that moves the body such that it will grow. That's what's being described here. Our growth is a synergistic, collaborative, cooperative effort between us and God. So although we will not truth and love perfectly, we have every reason to believe that our failures will not stunt our growth and prevent our maturity. Rather, we know that because Christ is the one who makes the body grow, we can have confidence that even our failures is a process of growth. And if we continue to commit to walking in a manner worthy of our calling, to truth and love with one another, we will grow. God guarantees it. And that, friends, is how Paul thinks that we as a community can harness this world-shaking, unique power the gospel has among us. So if you're a Christian and you still feel disconnected to God sometimes and you feel like your faith isn't going anywhere, maybe the solution is for you to actually be connected to the community and to dedicate your life to serving one another. It doesn't have to be this community. It doesn't have to be CCC, but elsewhere. Because fact is, growth isn't happening on your own terms. God has always designed it for it to happen together. But if you're not a Christian and you feel disconnected from all of this and you checked out 40 minutes ago, just remember this. Christ, your head, is calling you to be his body. Nothing that you have done before disqualifies you from being part of this community, from being part of this family, and even if you're a little bit interested in experiencing this profound unity that has been the greatest unifying force in the history of the world, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the grave, he will save you and unite you to this family. So will you do that? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how amazing and how deep is your love for us, Lord. It's incredible that you have united people here from all sorts of backgrounds, from all sorts of different uh, 
locations, Lord, from all sorts of different callings together to serve one another as your body. Lord, we confess that in our sins and in our laziness and in our lack of desire for you and in our selfishness, we neglect serving one another. Father, I pray that you can make vivid this emptiness that we have in our hearts when we are disconnected from you. Make us long for you, Lord, and allow us to draw near to the community. And when that happens for those people in the community, I pray that your spirit may be among them to unify them, to see each other as family, that we may grow truly into a body that is worthy of you as our head, knowing that it is you will finish the work that you've started in us and you will complete us and perfect us unto righteousness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.